Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, my friend, happy Saturday. Dude, it's, it is, wow, is it Saturday? <laughs> it is Saturday, and it's so funny because as you have moved and you were kind of setting up your gear and you were humming the A-Team theme song. <laughs> and I was like, I love that song. It was such a great show. Build Back Better is what we're going to talk about today. And could you build that back and better? Because they did a movie out of it. They did. Did you think the movie was better than the original television show? No. Well, the thing is, I don't know. It was a while back. I had the, uh, just by coincidence, I happened to see it on TV. Must have been on some cable channel. And it wasn't as... <laughs> I'm not sure it was as good as I remembered it as a kid, frankly. <laughs> yeah, television was so... This is what's interesting. It kind of gets into our topic. I think about this, that um, we're in the golden age of television. I mean, there's just never been a time where where it's... Be- like, the kind of serial dramas... I mean, I'm sure... I mean, I know that um, you and, 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 and Maxie binge-watch stuff, because you'll tell me, oh, we're watching this or watching that. Like, you can binge-watch these amazing shows that are coming out all the time. Like, these... But but it doesn't seem like I mean but I remember like shows like Knight Rider or the A Team or the Incredible Hulk on a Friday night when they were going to come out. These shows were not anywhere near shot on the qu- level of quality or the level of actors or there was not. Now a television show is shot on the same kind of film as a movie is, right? Whereas back when you and I were kids, hmm. television looked a lot different than a, than a movie, right? Which is why you wanted to get from the small screen to the big screen. Which now, the small screen is where the action is. If you're going to really be an actor that's involved in something artistically that's got massive cultural appeal, it's not going to be a movie. It's going to always be some sort of serial, either a comedic one or a or a kind of dramatic one. That's where all the action is now. It would be interesting, I mean, if we wanted to explore that topic someday, to talk to somebody um, who who is on the business side of the the television industry because it's it would be i think a good example that a lot of people could could relate to because we you know you know we all consume the content of that industry it'd be a good example of how changes in a business model um and and in kind of how the market forces work can you know have a have a strong impact on our lives in society um and I mean, I think that that person would probably start by saying, like, it's we, it's not even like the reason that it's changed is that it's not TV anymore. If 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 television used to be, and even cable television used to be, the idea of w- basically we we fill airtime, like that is what we are selling, and we fill it once for whoever consumes it. And and the economic model of streaming on demand services, where you have people subscribing to you know multiple different streams of content it just means that the 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 economics are completely different and and so you're looking for um you know and and now you have all of these streaming services that are starting up and they're all looking for that kind of that that must see uh episodic thing that will be the tentpole that people will be uh, coming in to their streaming service to to see in 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 the same way that you know it used to be in 
in the movie theaters, you know, had these blockbuster movies, which are kind of like the tent pole that would get people coming in and then, you know, also seeing some other movies or at least buying the popcorn. Right. And, and that was always the economics for why would we spend so much money making a single movie? Because these tent poles keep the whole industry working. Um, the so, theater will be done once we can replicate what carbonated beverages taste like. Because they do taste better from the fountain. Because I read an article. It's, it's temperature. No, it's temperature. There's, oh. it's, it's something to do with temperature and how they're kept cold. So they taste really refreshing. And then if you could... Microwave popcorn is not yet to the place where it replaces movie theater <laughs> popcorn, but it's getting better. Because that's the only thing that keeps... That, and maybe after COVID, there will be a slight tick up, back up in going to the movies because people are just going to want to be back or maybe they won't because they'll just be wary of, of of viruses but i also think that the development of of better televisions better sound systems better this better that really disincentivizes you going to the theater because your viewing experience at home is so great it's not it's not like a couple decades ago where you had this kind of little campy tv that wasn't as good obviously like Going to the, the the theater was it was grandest experience. You go there like there's gum on the floor. It's sticky. <laughs> the temperature it's always either too hot or too cold. You, you're kind of you know you you're paying exorbitant amounts of money. You pay like what thirteen dollars for a, for a movie ticket now. So like let's say two let's say a couple goes to the movies and then you buy popcorn and a soda and Twizzlers. You're fifty some dollars to to for for a viewing experience that I don't think can compete with what you can do at home. Well, so I think that, you know, probably a lot of the industry is, is not going to try to compete with what you're doing at home, but to distinguish between them as very different experiences. And and say like, yeah, like watching TV at home is great for the, uh, you know, the safety, the warmth, the convenience, the comfort of being at home. Um, you know, as as populations are able to get together in groups, the big the big ad campaign is going to be about you know, don't you want to get out of your home now that you can? And you know, I think that you know, and not just in the film industry, that's just maybe the one that everyone will be able to relate to. But so many industries, like travel, for example, or um, concerts or music festivals, a lot of them are not going to come back. And the ones that do are the ones that really make a strong case for it's worth it. This experience of getting together with other people, what what happens here that you can't get at home is is worth paying for and is worth coming to. And, you know, I think a lot of industries that were strongly, you know, were just shut down by the pandemic. If they're wise, they're thinking they're thinking in those terms, like trying to really, okay, let's let's be hard on ourselves and 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 try to understand you know, what is most compelling that we can offer, that we can add um, to to you know, to people's lives or, or to the community. So, yeah. Which brings us full circle to our topic for today. Build back you saw better. what I did there, did you? You, t- you did a nice move. You, you set me up. You set me up. We, like, the, the audience here, they saw it. They saw a wind up. It was a nice wind up and a pitch. Because, yeah, I mean, it's something so trivial is, or, well, entertainment's not trivial, but theaters and thinking about how they go forward. But this idea of build back better, which is the base camp, uh, February 2021 base camp theme for our listeners that don't know, we'll put links in the show notes. Base camp is an intergenerational, interdisciplinary group of people from all over the world that get together to talk about big questions in the world. And if you are not um, 
connected to it. We can tell you how to get connected if, if you think you're a potential camper. And the, this month's issue or topic is build back better. Um, Which I think is a great, you know, at some point we had to um, give all of us a space to explore this. Because as I think, if I would sort of add to your description of what Basecamp is about, I, I think of it as, you know, really trying to trying to help us see what we don't see. You know, I kind of have this bias that we're, we're just not getting it. I mean, it's, I, th- I think to, to you and me and, and, and all of us who, who come together for these conversations, we understand that there's a lot that is important that is happening in reality that we are not seeing. And, and some things we can only see together, right? Get out of my head, you know, try to understand the world from Scott's perspective. And that helps me to, um, to see into my own blind spots and kind of put the, put the full picture together. And I think that, you know, there is obviously, you know, because there was such a disruption of, you know, kind of ordinary life due to the pandemic, it, it's quite natural that a narrative emerge about, you know, when we are able to go back to the way things were, um, you know, do we want to take this opportunity to um, go back to a different way of, 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 of things, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the area might be? And, and I think that there's so much, there's going to be so much energy around that narrative. Um, and it means, you know, the idea of let's build back better. I think it means something different to everyone, which is kind of part of the evil genius of the phrase, right? You get everybody to agree with it. Um, but until you kind of get into, but what does it really mean to you? Um, it's not clear if, you know, that definition of better is one that's going to be better for you, one that aligns with, with your values or your sense of what's, what needs to change in, in, in the world. Um, and so I feel like we can learn so much from one another just by kind of hearing one another talk honestly about, well, what does it mean to you? Because I think it reveals a lot of our own sense of, you know, what is going right, what is going wrong in the world, you know, what do I feel about the direction we've been on, you know, what do I think some of the changes in direction need to be? It's it's kind of, it's all in how we hear that phrase and what it means to us. So, yeah, so I'm really excited to just get a global group of us together and and uh, and just honestly share with one another, you know, what does is, what is Build Back Better mean, mean to you? Yeah, and I think this is where things like commas and punctuation are incredibly powerful and instructive and revelatory. Because if we're saying build back better, like, like we're just going to build back in a better way or are we going build comma back comma better or something so are we so when we're saying back in in i think that the origin of this of build back better comes with the un right and there were it, it came out of a japanese delegation or something to the un during some kind of disaster reconstruction kind of things in, in, i have like, no idea and that's interesting yeah in like 2015 or something it 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 started with Fukushima. The, yeah, it start. Yeah, exactly. It started um, there, but but then it's because I even think of the way I've been processing the concept a little bit in the past few days, leading up to our conversation. And I I think as an American who just lived through this this epic defining kind of election, right? But where and Biden had this build back better, so build. So it, mm, it kind so of you hear it in political terms. Yeah, because because for the past, you know, unlike the UK where you're located, which oh my gosh, if we could do stuff like this, I mean, I think you can't have 
paid TV ads and stuff for elections in the UK, right? There, there aren't TV ads during elections. Uh, oh, let's, um, I'm, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I'm sure there must be. <laughs> I think it's more that there are quite, there are quite tight limits on the money that can be spent in election campaigns and who can spend that money. And that's really where the difference is. Whereas here, just so, so I'm, I was bombarded with the message and the message someone, that we were going to build back better. If build back vote, better. Vote for me yeah. and we'll build back better. We'll build back better. Interesting. Right. And, and I mean, Biden wasn't the most charismatic of candidates. He's, I think he's a really good guy. And I, you know, full, I voted for Biden. I think he strikes me as a, as a person that is a really a decent human being, but he's not the most charismatic guy in the world. And, but, but what I think people, he was kind of campaigning on a return to normalcy. So, so on one level, build back better was we're going to rebuild the economy. We're going to do this, but also the back was right. Yeah, a return to normalcy, or or to be blunt, like like world pre-Trump, right? Was kind of what that word, you know, parsing each word, you know, build back better to to your ears, going back to sort of a, a world before Trump, sort of saying that, you know, I guess that. In a political campaign, his his argument being basically that things were better back in 2015. <laughs> so right. I'm going I'm to take you back to there, and then we're going to build from you know to sort of how things should be. Whereas you know if you were a strong Trump supporter, you probably hear uh, you might disagree with the whole concept of you know going back to 2015. If you feel like we've been on a on a path on on a positive trajectory for the last few years, I don't want to unwind that progress that that we've made because imagine if the state if if the un had done rebuild better that would be a completely different grammatical construction as to build back better right and so i think i think the back it does something really different than if it was rebuilt i guess if you think about it like if you parse those three words what's interesting is that each of them you know i like both supports and does violence to your position, whatever it is, you know, like the idea of building, you know, I mean, you know, let's say, let's say you're an environmentalist. Okay. And, um, you like build back better means like we need to, we need to invest, you know, billions and trillions of dollars in, uh, you know, basically post fossil fuel energy production. So solar and wind tidal, things like that to someone in the fossil fuel industry, what you're hearing is we need to destroy um, you know, existing fossil fuel infrastructure, you know, like, like coal mines, for example. And, and yeah. And so like one person's building is another person's tearing down. Right. And then, and then back is kind of this word, like, you know, we all have, we all have a sense. It's an interesting word because like you heard it as a kind of looking back to the past, right? That like, I feel like we've been on the wrong road. So I'm going to kind of go back to, to a world that feels, to maybe not a world, but to a pathway that feels more progressive to me, um, and and as an American, the, the past four years and and for the, and the world followed this. I mean, because we we have ripple effects. I mean, sometimes I think other countries should be able to vote in our elections because we influence the world so much. It it, it, it the last four years were really disruptive to global norms with with Donald Trump. I mean, they were really disruptive and unsettling, and 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 I think the the, the backness is something that 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 people that were opposing Trump sort of said, "Look, can't we just go back to some sense of of, of normalcy?" But that prioritizes. I mean, it, it it's so prejudicial, right? Because people were complaining about the norms before Trump, 
But now, all of a sudden, with Trump, it, there was this sense of, of 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 the normal, which the normal is always a construction, right? Like like the the the, the, the good old days or something. That's always nostalgic and constructed. Uh, yeah. So you know, back is back does a lot of work. I think some people hear it as um, like a return to some previous normal. Um, which even that, you know, there are some people in this world who like, you know, what is normal? I haven't had a normal day in my life. You know, uh, people who, people who, you know, people who tend to be seen as on the margins of society, you know, might live in that narrative. Say like you know, as soon as you talk about normal, I feel excluded <laughs> because you're not getting it. Um, but that that's part of back is is for some people it's I want to return to a to a sense of to a sense of normal. Um, you know, for some people it's maybe a return to a past. I think that was a lot of you know to reference your country's politics, a kind of you know like make America great again. There's some kind of mythical past. And, and, and back is about an energy to returning to that. Whereas, you know, for, again, staying in your political frame for, you know, Democrats and Biden supporters, you know, going, it's probably more not going back to a certain point in time, but, but going back to a certain experience of change, um, you know, which you understand and maybe feel like you have some influence over as opposed to being a victim of forces, whether it's populism or, um, you know, technological transformation that you just feel like is, has taken control and influence away from you. Going back is about trying to recover um, a familiarity with the, with the forces of change in a sense that the forces that you identify with are, are the ones that are shaping the world. Which I guess sort of then gets to this word of better, right? Like maybe better is the most contentious word of all um, because that's where, you know, all of the values are. Yeah, but I mean, better is interesting, right? Because it, it, it plays on the capacity of us to improve and to get, and, and, and what is better? I mean, I think it's very interesting because you wrote a great book, which was the occasion for our first ever talking. And it's called The Age of Discovery. It's a book that if our listeners haven't read it, I'd really encourage it. It's, I love the book. It's fantastic. And it's, you're talking about the parallels between the Renaissance and our own contemporary age of, of, of both progress and chaos. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that I remember I love about the book is you say, look, we've got the same three problems they had in the Renaissance. How do you get the aggregate gains to more particular people? Right, like the, right, right now in the West, it's the best time to be alive. Right, I mean, life expectancy, income, things like this. You know, progress on racial discrimination and stuff. It's no, it's not perfect, but it's grown a lot. And just like then and now, but how do you get the 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 aggregate gains, particularly, to more people? And then the other, the second point you make is how do we create new wealth into real well being for people? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, so new economic opportunities and new industry, new things actually make people's lives better. And the third thing you talk about is how do you deal with new social realities? You know, in the Renaissance, it's guilds and monasteries and, and convents breaking up. In, in the West, it's different kind of social organization via social media and, and these sorts of things. And that's right where I think that the whole, the, the tension between back and better, because you kind of point out in the book, even our, our, our looking at a term called the Renaissance. It, it's kind of retrospective. We kind of named it that retrospectively, right? It, 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 the way we look at what's back and, which be, and, and what's better are always kind of really situated in, in our current desires and, and what we're pining after now, right? Hmm. 
I'm supposed to say something profound right now, aren't I? You're, you're on for profound. Like this is your cue card. I'm holding up a cue card right now for our audience. It says, Chris, profound. <laughs> I'm quoting you to you. I feel like, you know, so if, if what we've, you know, just in 10 minutes, you know, we've looked at this, this phrase, which on the surface, you know, feels like a compelling narrative for the now to kind of, you know, bring people together. I think, I think the other, just briefly on it, like the other, I, I say evil genius, I'm not saying it's evil, but, but the other kind of twist of the phrase is it kind of implies that we've hit rock bottom. Yeah. And so now, you know, so yeah, so that's, as, things are bad, but they're going to get better. So now it's time to start thinking about how are we going to rebuild? You know, what are the choices we want to make? And all, all of that implies that we kind of bottomed out when, you know, in fact, that's probably hopelessly optimistic. You know, maybe, you know, for, for many countries around the coronavirus, there's definitely the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, things could still go sideways there even. But there are all sorts of implications of the last 12, 15 months that are still going to take time to, to even be recognized. Um, you know, pandemics and mental health and the, just the sheer devastation of small and medium businesses across so much of the world. And, you know, there are whole countries whose economies have been completely crippled by the coronavirus. You know, I think of, for example, and any, any small country whose primary industry is tourism from the rest of the world, right? There is, it's going to take a long time to, to even just count the consequences of that. And, you know, and, and then there was all of the stuff that we were worrying about before the, before the coronavirus became the main thing we were worrying about, whether it was climate change or social inequality or political populism. All of these things that so many people were arrested by have only been strained further by the past 12, 15 months. So, so in some ways, you know, the whole thematic, I get it how, you know, someone running for high office in the United States would, would pick up that narrative and deploy it because you want to be associated with hope, right? Elect me and we will, we will shift from a season of despair to a season of hope. We're going to start building back better. So, you know, so that, that's, that's my first reflection is that, you know, even the narrative, you know, does violence in the sense that it says it's time to stop accounting the, for the costs and it's time to start um, building back. Right. And, when in reality, there's still a, just a tremendous need in society to just continue the project of, of uh, you know, compassion and, and empathy and exploration of what is happening, right? And, and learning from all that the past 15 months have, have kind of revealed to us. But the other thing that, you know, it just, just for us, just the two of us, and, you know, we're, we probably look at the world in, in, in many ways in very similar ways, and we can hear that phrase um so differently it it really just does i don't know it just it just sort of emphasizes to me how you know in in terms of better if we could just understand one another better i think that would do the world no end of good because you know there are going to be um just so many agendas this year i think leveraging this narrative um leveraging the sense of things broke and now we get a chance to put them back together how how we would prefer them to be and and this is an opportunity to 
really get curious about one another and the different ways that you would reassemble it, Scott, right? And, and, and you would reassemble it, Hannah. But, you know, perhaps more likely it will just be, I'm going to get people behind my vision of how things should be reassembled and, 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 and try to rush into the breach and, and fill it in with the, with the future that I prefer, with the better that I prefer. Yeah, I think this is also the difference between the way politicians and sloganeers and marketers use things versus people at the UN. Like when they come up with this phrase, they're thinking about disaster relief and very concrete. I mean, this is a phrase that they adopt, but they're thinking about very specific disasters, right? And and, and the idea of... So it's not, it's not a campaign speech that gets adopted by the UN. It's a, it's a summary for an approach to disaster relief that is attempting to say that, that this disruptive thing that's happened, despite the tragedy, can offer us an opportunity to possibly move forward. And it was very specific around, well, here's how we do land usage and here's how we do... It was not this kind of vacuous thing that it became in American politics. And, you know, I think about this... Uh, this book that was written a few years ago, The Great Leveler, Violence in the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century by Walter Scheidel, um, Princeton University Press publication, by the way, one of my degrees, Princeton, love Princeton, uh, go Tigers. Uh, but, but basically Scheidel, Scheidel argues that, that, that things like um, mass violence and pandemics are actually the things that promote income that actually disrupt income inequality because well wealth begets wealth right and so if you have disruptive events like the plague or something like that where all of a sudden i mean you've written about this in your book in the age of discovery right you get something like the plague that kills a bunch of people and there's a labor shortage right and all of a sudden there's a bunch of people that have all kind of power in the guilds and things like that right even, because or, or, their labor or even power over the landholders who need people to work the land to work right, right. Right. There's a there's a scarcity of labor and so we have more power. Yeah. And so is that gonna kind of be one of these things where the are we gonna look back and is or it, and this is so bizarre and it feels morbid to think about this, but is is the COVID phenomena gonna be something that's actually gonna mitigate income inequality? Or will it exacerbate it because there's certain people that can work from home and, and, and these sorts of things where, you know, th- th- there are certain people that can't work from home and certain people that really can do all their economic functions from home. And so is, it, does it make inequality better or worse? You know, it's interesting, uh, like the, and I can't wait to get into some, you know, just some conversations with, with people who are in different life situations around what does this phrase mean to you? Because... Um, you know, I can see if you're asking about people's incomes, you know, I for a lot of people, I think that um, coronavirus um, has had a devastating impact on in, on their incomes. Um, if um, if 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 the patterns of behavior in society from which they got their livelihood have been broken. Um, so, you know, I think obvious examples, especially in the early days of the pandemic, when everybody was just shut down, you know, if you had... I started to build a kind of nice income for yourself as, um, you know, uh, an Uber driver. And suddenly nobody is, nobody is going to the airport anymore, right? Nobody's taking taxis into work anymore. You know, you're, I remember talking to, to some in like the early days and like income, you know, falling by, you know, 20x, just, just completely devastated. Now, you know, 
do you switch into you know ferrying packages for Amazon to house like you know the, but so there's a, an awful lot of disruption to individuals um, livelihood when society switches its pa- its patterns it's also true that you know long term yeah maybe you do see you know positive impacts as well where you know just the the kind of acceleration of of um virtual employment of of working from home of contributing solid economic value without having to be there personally in person um you can you know quite easily imagine how that could improve the incomes of single mothers for example for who you know the cost of childcare means that it's very difficult for them to work outside of the home and now if the universe of jobs that you can do from home expands um, you know, if the opportunities to advance up traditional hierarchies of large corporations expands from home, and that can be that can be a liberating experience. I just think of myself how you know, as someone who in 2019 spent a lot of time flying around the world, you know, consulting and speaking and 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 running workshops and things like that. And in 2020, discovering that I can do all of that work without leaving home. Um, you know, for me, I experienced an expansion. In, in just my overall quality of life, let's say. so. But don't you think that's also because you have an entrepreneurial personality? And so, and, and so you tend to look at the world in terms of creative opportunities. Like you're a kind of risk taker. You talk to risk takers. You, so I wonder how much... I also went into the pandemic with a lot of advantages, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So but, the, even, the, but even the advantages, I think though there's something about creative thinking... That advantage, because I think most people aren't entrepreneurial thinkers, right? Most people, and that's not like a, a, a dig on not being, I just think like most people, you know, like most nurses, okay? I know a lot of nurses. They're they're one of the hardest working group of people. They're amazing. Most of the nurses I know are just fantastic people. But you don't go into nursing because you want to disrupt some kind of system. You go in because it's... You with with you can really make a lot of money doing something meaningful without going to med school or something like that. So your your income possibilities with relative um, modest education compared to a doctor or physical therapist or something are really high. But you but most nurses I know are not people that they have opinions about the healthcare system, but they're not people that are often they're 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 not motivated by changing the the engine. And the delivery stuff of healthcare—they're—they're they're motivated by kind of being in a system that compensates them well, takes care of them, and where they can give quality services. So, I mean, I wonder how much of the kind of thing we're thinking about depends on the creative class to kind of think through things in in ways that 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 most people in the economy don't have the time to think through, or, or because they're they want to get paid I, to do something meaningful. I, I'm not. I'm. Hmm. I'm not particularly. Um, I don't know why. I, I I don't have a well-reasoned argument for this. It's just more intuitively. I'm I'm reluctant to kind of put too much weight upon entrepreneurial ability. I know that you know that's a very kind of I don't know sexy trait to promote, but I I think it's more the case that I feel like if you've got a lot of advantages. It's maybe easier to, um, you know, to to figure out the new configurations of work earlier. 
but but it's you know the configurations that work then become normal and and it's not you know it's not about having the entrepreneurial talents for it it's just sort of it, it literally is just going with the flow i mean there are so many um you know i mean god i mean <laughs> who's not an entrepreneur <laughs> these days in some capacity right there there are just so many ways to mm, create income streams for yourself outside of like a formal full-time work contract um you know it's maybe like i don't know what the statistics are but but i would to, to my mind this is just kind of part of society's sort of broader transition from a kind of industrial age mindset kind of the factory the supervisors the line employees to um an economy where you know so much of the value that is exchanged is dematerialized um and it's working with information and it's working with ideas and i wonder if i feel like my computer has just frozen, so I wonder if you can still hear me. Can you still hear me? I can totally hear you. Huh. Okay. Well, then it's just it's just me. It's frozen on my end. Um, and I, so for me, I'm more, I'm more worried about the capacity of individuals to, to shape what words like better mean. Um, so you know, I think one thing that a lot of people can relate to is working from home. Um, they've actually they're working more than they were when they were working in the office. I mean, it's, it's, it's been an, so I'm less concerned about, you know, as an individual, you know, what's our capacity to be entrepreneurial. And I'm more concerned about, um, you know, how do we, how do we really influence a societal understanding of what is better? Um, you know, and you know, that kind of that mythical 10 hour work week that technology was meant to enable for people, um, just seems farther away than ever now that people have the technology to work from home. And, you know, as much as it's been enabling, and I think there's been um, a sense of an expanded quality of life, the, the flexibility to, to negotiate, you know, the complex demands of the modern world upon, you know, being a parent with children and their schooling needs and your own health and fitness and well-being needs and work. Um, you know, the whole idea of like the eight or nine hour work week, five days out of seven, just isn't compatible with those competing demands. And and so, you know, in 2020, people felt a lot of just, okay, the ability to kind of reconfigure my time to, to a, a more sensible and sustainable combination of where I spend things. But what also ended up happening is, you know, suddenly the, the barriers between work and home are completely eliminated. And if you're not careful, you end up working even more hours. So, you know, what is what is better? What is a better um, future of work? You know, and, and at, at what point is more technology not making our lives better? Uh, because it's filling and us I wonder, with, with things I, that aren't nece- necessary and crowding out the things that that are. And, and, you know, how do we as... You know, as 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 people in this age where there is so much energy and resources and frankly capital invested in a narrative that more technology makes us better, how do we bring a kind of um, a, a personal and and a social and a psychological and a cultural and a spiritual reality um, to weigh in in shaping what better means? I think that's going to be a huge 
huge just i don't know confrontation but certainly area of work for every society and i think so you brought up an interesting example about the uber driver and so i i'm you know i'm a chatty guy so whenever i take an uber or a lyft i uh, and i live in a major city i don't have a car so i can you know use public or some if i need to quickly go somewhere or use uber or lyft and i always talk to the drivers and i'm really curious about what they're doing and how this one guy was making a pretty decent living but then when you when you look at his how many hours he's working and and i'm wondering uh, on one level the driver looks like th- like they have more entrepreneurial agency because they don't have to clock in you know to the factory uh, and then clock out they they have some agency and yet to make a decent living he's got to basically work all the time and the people that profit the most are still the people that own Lyft and Uber, right? So, so you wind up, it, it looks, and, and I'm, sure, I'm sure because of the relative newness and novelty of, these kind of, of the gig economy stuff, we'll be thinking this through for decades. But on one level, it looks better to hmm. me. And on one level, it looks back to me. And <laughs> this guy just looks like another factory worker. Hmm. Who's doing overtime? Mm. It doesn't with it doesn't with look, arguably he's, even he's, kind of less power than you had in the factory, where you could, you know, physically mobilize and you could physically interrupt the production of of wealth in that factory system. And union and the factories gave birth to unions, mm. which I think the gig economy will kill. Like, there's not going to be an Uber driver union in all likelihood. Maybe there will be. Maybe that will be part of the better moving forward. But but uh, these entrepreneurial kind of streams for the, for the gig worker tend to be anti-unionized, right? They tend to be very individualistic. And you, how much real agency and power do you have in the gig economy? Right. So Other, other than setting your own. So hours. I think in my mind, listening to you there, like the big word screaming in the back of my head is institutions. And I think for me, a lot of building back better in a, in a kind of way to meaningfully influence some of the big um, categories of risk to sort of you know broad to to a broad based increase in in well-being you know risks like environmental risks uh inequality you know misinformation and 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 um you know bad uses of technology and politics health a a key element of making improvements in all of those dimensions for me is probably going to be institutions um you know so so you talk about yeah like in a gig economy what is the institution that serves to help um, the labor inputs to, you know, kind of recognize and and kind of fight for um, a piece of the pie that uh, you know that is that is adequate or more than adequate for for them. Um, and it, and it's complicated because then you have a global pandemic and you realize that if people don't have the adequate means to um, be safe and be secure and be resilient to have resilience, then uh, they put everybody at risk, right? If it would be better that I be at home, but I can't afford to be home because I don't have the savings to fall back on. I have to go out and and be a vector for the spread of a disease in order to earn an income. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily lead to society as a whole being being better off. And, and so, you know, this is, I mean, just a, a, a giant topic that we can't finish. But I think of so many, so many examples over the past couple of years where what's going on to me just screams, oh, we need better institutions for this. I mean, so right now, you know, in, in the context of what's happening in your country with, you know, a, a presidential uh, impeachment proceeding in 
in your in your Senate. And I just sort of watch what is happening and feel like I need a better institution to hold to hold those people to yeah, account it, it, because that's not what these people are doing. Or no, and I think I think we've talked about this in the podcast before. I'm 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 not sure, but I think we've talked about. It. But I remember seeing Mark Zuckerberg before the Senate, whatever some Senate committee talking oh, yeah. about. Yeah, brilliant example. Yeah, and Orrin Hatch goes. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's an older guy from Utah. I think he died a couple of years ago. But um, no, I don't. Maybe he's still alive. I'm not sure, but. It's this old senator from Utah who says, well, I mean, you, 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 you offer all these services to your clients for free. What are they, how do you do that? And, and Zuckerberg just goes, um, we sell ads. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you're just thinking there's no possible way the United States Senate, one of these great deliberative institutions, could possibly regulate a, a, well, a corporation like Facebook. It's impossible. Well, it's just impossible. But also, like, it just seems, it, it just seems strange that it should be the responsibility of you know men and women in their eighties to hold to account you know thirty year olds um, for the impact of technology. When over those fi- in that fifty year gap, there have been you know multiple giant waves in technological transformation. I mean, it is just it you're living in in different universes of. Um, of awareness of what these, you know, the roles that these technologies play in society and the roles that these people play. And, and and it's sort of, it is an institutional failure that it is the responsibility of those people to, um, to be the regulators. You, you need a different institution that's, that's able to do so. And I love that you're saying this because I think it's not a sexy term, right? It's not the, when you're thinking about the future and building back better and you're thinking about with with creatives and you're thinking about things that are exciting and generate energy and imagination one of the words that's not on the top 10 list is going to be institutions mm-hmm. but they are they they are where the action is and, and 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 the biggest thing you can do probably for a lifetime legacy in human history is if you create a sustainable institution cuz those are things that we live and die by and through Right, like institutions are incredibly powerful, but it and maybe we need in the whole build back better moment. Maybe we just need a a, a a healthier and more imaginative way to talk about the power of institutions. I think yes. I think probably um, somebody needs to come up with a better, uh, a sexier word for institutions that means institutions, but somehow doesn't evoke the same kind of marble columned ineffective slow grinding all of all of that all of that conceptual baggage that um that the word institution evokes institution feels like where 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 positive energy goes to die (laughs) right 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 and it also feels like it's where um where um, motive energy goes to die in, in just kind of like the, I don't know, the, the popular, the popular kind of association with the word. I wonder what would happen if I go into, uh, Google images right now and, and Google the institution. And I type in institution. What do I see? I see, 
I'm gonna do the same. Uh, okay, thing. I see. Right like I'm like I'm like in ancient Athens. I see, you know, the the temple with its marble pillars and a drawing of a oh, building with gosh, marble pillars and another building with marble pillars <laughs> and another building with marble pillars. I see. There's bad power. And I've got like a like a like a wide second screen, and my screen is just full of triangles supported by marble pillars, right? Like. <laughs> So These are isn't that fascinating? So that's what we think an institution is. And that picture is 2,000 years old. Um, and that's why, you know, well, that's part of why it's hard to get people excited about that. Yeah, if we really want to build back better, if we want that slogan to mean anything, or if we want to even explore what it should mean, what it could mean, we need to build better institutions. Like, it, you, like really? Like, you want to, like, you want to reassemble, you know, the, uh, you know, ancient Rome? Like that, like... But it's, fun it's funny, though, that, that we say this, because I was thinking, I don't know why this popped into my mind, but I was thinking, what's the opposite of the non-sexy pictures, right? And I was thinking of, I love the Daniel Craig, James Bond films. And this is heretical, but I think he's a better James Bond than Sean Connery, even... And that is those films are, yeah, it's right. I'm and it's out there now. I'm not erasing. I said it. I'll stand by it. But he's this radical individual, right? But that's only sustained by an institution. His whole like his whole ability to save the world is because he's part of a stodgy British institution that knows how to resource agents and learns how to monitor, uh, you know, weapons stuff that's being sold to bad actors. And that knows technology, knows how to train agents to fit into different things. So his whole life, you know, James Bond looks like this radical individualistic hero, but he could never be James Bond without the institution. Uh, I guess it's MI6, right? Like the the Foreign Service. So his whole life is so institutional, but it's very exciting. You don't you don't watch those films thinking, oh my god, institutions are so boring. You're kind of into it, like, oh my God, he's got Q and he's getting the car and he's getting the communication devices and he's, but that's institutional reality, right? Th th these are people that have built an institution. They're thinking, oh my gosh, the world's a scary, dangerous place. And we have to build institutions, organizations, like communities that pass on knowledge so that that guy is not, Daniel Craig's not on his own. He's actually everybody when he's in the field doing these things that are, you know, virtual eye cocaine on the screen or whatever they're only made possible by these by this whole complex array of networks and with people that will never go uh do something dangerous or sexy or exciting and in a kind of casino in montenegro but the whole capacity for that is institutional there's so you know as i think of um of base camp, you know, in some ways as um, playing, in some ways playing the role of an institution. If the role of the institution is to be a space um, to explore, to explore with greater breadth and greater depth, the topic of its concern. And, 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 and to me, that's, you know, that's kind of an accurate working definition, right? Like if you were say, you know, a legal institution. Um, you're trying to you're trying to um, kind of be a steward of your topic, of your area of concern, with with a greater depth and a greater breadth, maybe especially breadth, than um, 
than the individual agents within that area of concern tend to practice. Like, I think that's what we're reaching for when we talk about, we need an institution for this, right? If we want to, if we want to prevent the next pandemic, we need to look at our institutions of public health. Like we need to, we need to have some part of all the activity that is really advocating and exploring, like, how does all of this connect? What are the, what be more farsighted, you know, both in time and in, in kind of space to help bring that perspective to, you know, all of our individual agency. I think that's kind of what we're saying institutions are about. If we're going to regulate technology, it's like we need, and that's what you kind of, you look to the Senate, you know, but they're not able to bring the greater breadth and depth to the topic. That topic is so fast changing and so rich that it needs its own Senate, in a sense. It needs its own institution. But really what we need, it, what we're saying is it needs a locus where we can go for breadth and depth. And also, I'd want to know if we could relate these two words that are like, because constitution, because we think of people, we use the word constitution, or he's got a strong constitution, or she's got a strong constitution. And we're talking about bodily integrity, that they're going to they're gonna weather some kind of health uh, health crisis or something because because their constitution is strong their bodily integrity is strong or when we talk about it on governmental level they have a strong constitution we're saying they have this kind of body politic integrity that will weather the storms and the ups and downs and i wonder like what's the relationship between strong institutions and strong constitution so that so that to have a, a strong constitution what seems to be fundamental, just like a quality healthcare system is required for people to have bodily health. I wonder to have strong constitutions individually and societally, do we need strong institutions? Hmm. I, yeah, I, I don't know, <laughs> but listening to you, I don't know why what you said was making me think about, you know, the constitution. Is it something static? Is it something living? And I think that, again, in sort of popular, just unreflective thought, institution is something static. And maybe that's what's got to change. If there's going to be a kind of, you know, a vibrant agenda, like, yeah, we're missing some really good institutions here. Um, and again, you know, do the Google image search. It is overwhelmingly our visual concept of the institution is something that is um, immobile. You know, that's, you build you build things out of marble with a kind of triangle plinth on top when you want to demonstrate uh, stability and and permanence and a kind of this thing is like we've built this is the most stable way to build something this thing is going to fucking be here forever right is i think what we associate with an institution rather than uh, a sense of a kind of um a constant exploration and I think maybe that's that's th those are the kind of institutions that we need, not ones that say like, right, we know what is, and everyone's got to listen to us, but ones that say like, right, we are resourced to explore, and that's that's our permanent project, and and so, you know, we've got a kind of uh, a, a, we're exploring into a far future that maybe not everyone has time to consider, but we're considering it. Uh, and we're exploring kind of horizontally in terms of how does this stuff relate to all this other stuff um, to help bring those perspectives that that we don't have time for. So I feel like, 
it, it seems to me that you know both constitution and institution to be healthy. And I, I think you're right. There's some relationship there, but I think it's also like a living relationship, right? How does this living constitution is is enabled by living institutions? And maybe both of those two concepts are too mm, too static in in just popular imagining. Um, and once something starts happening, right, right, I think one of the things that's interesting about Basecamp is it's such a dynamic, organic community organization, but it's still an institution in some level. Once you start meeting regularly and people have responsibilities and you're meeting at the same times and you're, you're, you're regularly gathering, you know, there, it becomes kind of institutional and that's not a bad thing, right? It becomes something that, that is, taking on a social reality for some arc, for some period of time, and who knows how long. So there's an interesting tension there, right? Um, one of the core values of Basecamp that I think, well, that we have all distilled from the experience of the last couple of years is, is that everything is provisional, right? If we are a global society of explorers, that fundamentally we're all coming together to try to see what I'm not seeing so that I can discover better ways that are out there, but I just can't see them. And there's so much that we just can't see, right? So a, a society of explorers looking for what it's not seeing is always, you know, kind of in a, in a scientific way, always open to revising what I understand. You've got to have that openness. You've got to have that sense of everything is always in draft because there's always more to discover. So we have that value, and yet we have it as a value, right? So that's the so the institutionalization is to recognize that there are certain values in our practice, in our community of practice, that are probably you know maybe permanent, even if it's a value of holding things lightly and holding things to be provisional and and open to constant revision as we just continue to learn and grow because because we're a society of of explorers and so i think i think that's the you know probably you would look at any good institution um would would i think instantly relate to that you know to say that there are there are these constancies that we have you know discerned over time that they just don't change given the nature of what we're doing you know um you know, if we are some institution for health, then we've got certain ideas around, you know, at first do no harm, for example. Even as um, the the topics of the day change, you know, the, those, those values are, are constant. And maybe, maybe that's a good sort of place to bring people around to is to say like, look, when we say institutions, we mean values. Right? What are the, what are the, what are the, what are the constancies? Not in terms of like particular practice or procedure or regulatory red tape, which is what people associate with institutions now. But but what are the values that we are that we are? And I like the constancy about? term. I like the term of constancy because mm. it's interesting too. You look at the American Constitution. Theoretically, everything is up for grabs. If you get a two thirds majority on a constitutional amendment, you could abolish the presidency. You could do. I mean. There, there's nothing sacred in the American Constitution if you could get enough votes, right? You could you could amend the whole thing. You could get rid of the Senate. You could uh, make Lady Gaga the permanent head of state. Ooh, I mean, you exciting. could. 
you could, I mean, you could do, if you could get the votes, I mean, the founders built in something that would allow perpetual change, but they made, they made it a little hard so that you, you would have to get enough buy-in for there to be constancy. And I think I like that term of like values and constancy. Cause I mean, we need, I, I think we need, if we're thinking about building and back and better and the whole idea of this dynamic dance between these words and trying, especially in the time of, of a global pandemic to think about how we really do build back better. I mean, this is the, the interesting dynamic that probably needs to be fleshed out more. What's the, how do you have dynamic organic values and real lasting constancy? So I think, I think you've nailed it in terms of, you know, if trying to articulate why is it worthwhile for diverse people from around the world to come together and talk about what does building back better mean to you? Because, you know, this year, I think probably the next several years, there is just going to be a lot of agenda building and agenda advancement that is um, packaged as building back better. Whereas I think my view is that the most impactful thing to do would be to make that make 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 that kind of universe like yeah we want to build back better make it the starting point for an inquiry into um, how we see things differently and and what the points of constancy are and then if we could if we could kind of if we could clarify those then that kind of becomes a common foundation upon which to make some 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 difficult choices about different agendas because without those constancies it's 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 just it's just another power struggle in a different form right so let's take you know i i think of a lot of friends who work on either side of sort of the environmental agenda you know um for for climate scientists and I'd, I'd include i guess myself and the people who believe this i mean building back better probably means um you know a lot of short term pain <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of things yeah. being worse in the short term if we take kind of the the trajectory of where climate science tells us that we're going to for right? long for long term health we're going to have to take a lot of short term right. pain right whereas you know there's going to be so much conflict over that agenda unless we have some kind of shared constancy around what better means you know are are we talking what's our time horizon for these things are we talking about collective are we talking about individual are we like Sorry, now I'm rambling. But do you know what I mean? I feel I feel like yeah, the no, more important I, work is is exploring the different values that are at work that I'm bringing to the table when I say this is what build back better means to me. It's not so much the answer as the process is the thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the the amount of things you need to think through this. So I was thinking just as you were saying that, I was thinking about instances where let's say you're playing rugby or something. Well, I'm and really interested to see where a, this analogy is going to go. <laughs> let's say you get a you get a, you get a sprain in your leg or something. Sometimes the sprain is such that they'll break the bone to set it. Right, the, the oh, physician will actually break the bone. Right, so it seems worse. Right, and they're but they're saying, look, really, that's we cannot heal this unless you we we have to do. Sometimes physicians actually have to do a break in the bone because the sprain is so serious it will never heal, and a, and a break heals better. And so sometimes you, there are instances where you have to break a mm. bone to heal a sprain. And 
I, I think about that. That's just a fascinating thing. Where as you were talking about climate stuff, where what is our horizon for? How long could we not walk? Right? Or if you're the patient, are you thinking I I don't want to break? I mean I don't. But I think that's the interesting thing. If you think in a clinical conversation, you know, you've just been wounded from the rugby field, and you're thinking, well, I could, man, with the sprain, it'll kind of heal in three weeks, and I could play rugby right. again. But then the doctors, well, you know, it's going to be worse if you do this, and actually, you're probably not going to play rugby for a year. But if I do the surgical break and cast it and put the bone back together the right way, in a year you could play rugby for several years. Uh, and and the, these kind of how you frame these kinds of and I and I just think this is what I like about Basecamp a, a lot, and what I like about what we're doing this podcast because you need every word, every analogy, every story, every image we can get right. Mm-hmm. Like like right. I I I think there's not there's not. I mean, there's a real value in phrases like "build back better," right? Because they're quick and they're helpful, and they're you remember them in your mind, and and they're they're accessible. And yet also to complement that, you need all kinds and all manner of words and stories and images and interlocutors because these things are really complex. And every analogy, every story, every picture is really helpful. That's why it's great to have a global community of people from all sorts of disciplines and walks of life because we need every story, image, voice, word we can get. So I'll be very interested to see um, in February's base camp and we can kind of reflect on it afterwards. You know, how much, because, you know, I, I guess I'll be interested to see how much of the conversation that convenes around this question, what does Build Back Better mean to you? How much of it will kind of, you know, sort of devolve into competing competing visions of the good, right? Competing values. Well, you know, I for me it means this, and for you it means that, and we're just kind of in conflict over that. And how much of it, discovers um i guess both both the like the curious questions and exploration of how you see things versus how i see things you know what what building means to me what what i associate with back what i what i articulate is better how much of it becomes a a kind of curious search into the other to understand better and and how much it it becomes a discovery of these points of constancy upon which maybe we can build. Because I think that, you know, and those can be, and it's not like everybody agrees that, oh yeah, that that's it. But but if, if, if a few people agree on a point of constancy, but they had different agendas, you know, actually I thought, I think of going this way and you think of going that way, but we both agree that, that this needs to change. Um, then those points of constancy, even if the particulars are different, they can become a kind of ongoing conversation and exploration into each other, where maybe both of them then come with a, you know, modify what they're intending to do based on what they've learned from one another. And I think of the great painting, the School of Athens, right? Where I have that poster. Yeah, you have, have you seen it? Oh, I love it. Have that. you seen it in real life? Yeah, I, I've never seen it in I've person. I've seen it in no, person. I, it's beautiful. Oh, wow. Yeah, in the papal it's apartments beautiful- in the Vatican. Live it's in Europe, a, man. It's not that far. Well, I can't go see I it know, this year, I could, but I, I could get over. I'll there bet they've done some amazing there. cleaning. I bet a lot of museums oh, yeah. have done some amazing cleaning over the, over the last year. I, I would hope so if they have the funding to do so. It'll exactly. be like 2021, 20, It'll be a great year to be visiting museums. I'm sure the but walls and the painting. floors will be so squeaky. And oh, they'll shiny. be so clean. Sorry. You were saying you look at that painting though, and you have the cynics here and on the corner, and Pythagoras over there, and in the middle are Plato 
and Aristotle. And Plato is pointing up because his philosophy, he thinks, he thinks the, the real truth is in this kind of realm of forms that's non-physical, mm. right? Like, you know, a real triangle is not the triangle you draw. It's the triangle in your mind where you know all the angles and all this stuff. And Aristotle is pointing outwards to know, Plato, the real truth is the forms are in the world. So you can't escape the world. You got to get into the world, which is where Aristotle is saying horses and flowers. Mm. And, but they're, but the beauty is they're both in the school of Athens, right? And so, so this, it, it, it seems like this fundamental conflict is the real eternal truth in the immaterial or is it really in the nitty gritty? But in the middle is this, they're in the middle of an institution where all the philosophers are gathered around them. And now, you know, we couldn't think about Western ideas without Plato and Aristotle in conversation. Hmm. And yet, you know, 2,500 years ago, they're just in the school of Athens that looked, I don't know, it probably looked um, funky. And, you know, I'm sure merchants and military people thought, I don't know what they're doing over there. It looks like the Harvard School of Government or Kennedy School of Government or something. It it seems abstract. But they were part of an institution that shaped the way we all think. And that institution was just people talking and thinking Mm. together. Mm. And that was the School of Athens. I think of, uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's my hope. You know, we've, we've, we've created this space. I think we create good conditions for people to listen to one another. And, and in this global moment, you know, what does building back better mean to you? I think is just a, a fabulously effective way to, to get inside someone else's head and inside someone else's heart and, and just get a sense of, uh, of where they're coming from and what they see. And, you know, both for like, grand societal reasons. I, I fundamentally believe that if we all just understood one another better, that would do the world no end of good. I, be, I believe that fundamentally. Um, but also in more instrumental ways. I think it is just going to be so helpful to to have that kind of information of where different people are coming from. And it's so accessible right now because of the, 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 the rare shared context that we are all in. Uh, we get the relevance of the question. We all do. We can all attend to that question. Um, and so I have this kind of urgency inside, like before it, before everybody gets into their completely, like the, before there's, before the shared context disappears, this is the moment to come together and just try to learn as much as we can about how you see things. Um, and, and I wonder if there was that kind of urgency at the School of Athens, like hey, we can, we can get together here. And, you know, do you see in the sweep of history that, that it wasn't always this way. So we've got this precious space that we've managed to create where we can converse, where we can just talk. We have the luxury of that. And I wonder, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of go into Aristotle and Plato. I would, I mean, of course, they had a, a sense of their own um, privilege, I'm sure. But I think there was also a sense of, as a society, as a culture, that we are privileged. And so we need to seize upon the opportunity, which, you know, in our own histories, look to us as extremely rare what we've managed to build here. So let's leverage it in order to help one another to kind of reach, you know, uh, just a higher form of society. And I guess, you know, now I'm rambling a bit, but I feel like that's part of what we're trying to be a part of. Yeah. Not not to, we can't control that, but we can we can influence it, I think, in helping to no, create that No, and the School space. of Athens didn't control anything. I mean, they they... You know, they were philosophers and they were thinkers and and describers of what they saw in the world. I think that's, but that is the most powerful influence. 
the power of conversation. Right. And well, and then thinking back, you know, one of the big lessons of 2020 was just this kind of um, visceral. I've used that word a lot. I feel in 2020, but this visceral experience of connectedness that we are connected. That that it's not just rhetoric; it's real. Um, and and that this be a kind of opportunity to a space where we explore that connectedness, right? Where where we can just explore it. Yeah, and it, it is. It's interesting. Just before we close out, I just want to say something. Now, I talked with you a little bit about yesterday, but you know, I interviewed you on my interview podcast, Give and Take, years Which, ago. Congratulations, two hundred fifty episodes. Episodes. And you have you have interviewed like so many extraordinary thinkers. Um, it's been what a, a really garden. fun ride. Yeah, but you know, that's, I had no idea. I know, you know, your publicist is a good friend of mine and she's like, this guy's great. I loved your book. And we talked and we just were like, we just got to do more stuff together. But like the the, the, the mysteries of the universe, it, it, one conversation started this podcast. Now I'm involved in the base camp community. These, these fortuitous moments where you just meet someone and it was great. And, and and you and I just had the sense like, this isn't over. We've got to keep this going. Mm-hmm. And that's, I've met several people in base camp that I have these ongoing relationships with. And so I, right. it's just, I'm so grateful because I think about the, what the nature of base camp and just the way our relationship started by an interview, like it just a conversation. And then you and I became really good friends. I, I, I want to let you have the last word, but I'll just add on that. It's, it's not accidental if you think about it. I mean, we are a society of explorers. And so, and yes. so, you know, fundamentally, we are looking for the connections to help us see farther. And we know, we know that there is an intelligence in the connections that that is is nonlinear. And so, we're kind of open to those nonlinearities. And I think that's part of what you experience in in many conversations. You know, it's you know, humanity is a mixed bag. And so, frankly, you know, I think. Some of our base camp conversations are a mixed bag too, but there is this sort of this this undeniably present tone that that a that a society of explorers has that the default yeah. is a sort of openness and a curiosity and a, and a, an intellectual humility that that makes it easy i think to to form vibrant like a vibrant social brain where there is, you know, as you call your podcast, where there's a, where there's a healthy give and take. And that's why I go. That's why I go. By the way, everybody has to listen to, have you got like a, like a kind of your top 10 episodes list or something? I I don't. You, you would be do in them. Oh, yeah, you would be. Sure. You're you would just be. Maybe I should do that. You totally should, and like, then we can put it in the show notes and stuff. But you, that yeah, would be an amazing. I would love. I would but, but, appreciate but, that but, because but, I haven't listened to. No, all I, I know yet. we'll do that. But I think that's why I go to base camp, and that's why I think the it it's it's a high probability if you're a global explorer, if you haven't gone or if you haven't been in a while, I would just encourage you to come because also if you don't come, we lose your voice. Right. There's somebody, if you're there and you have these kind of burning questions or insights and want to engage, like if you're not there, we lose your voice and there's no do over, right? Like we can't get right. you, we can't get you back in the conversation. Right. Yeah. It's one of the beautiful things. It's like, it's like ephemeral art, right? Once it's over, it's, 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 it's yeah, it's it done. It's done. Yeah. 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 It was. Yeah. Thanks, my friend. This is a real pleasure always. Yeah. It's been, I, apologies um, with just COVID and, 
my move uh, in London, it, 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 it's taken me longer than I wanted to for us to be able to um, get back into the regular habit of these conversations. But I think we've got a plan now. We've got so a plan. So plans are good. <laughs> plans are good. We like plans. We like yeah, plans. Yeah, we do. Excellent. Both of us need haircuts. Oh, if my God. See us, we need yeah, haircuts. That's why, that's we why need, I said, like, we, let's not do this live. Let's. Yeah, uh, both let's. of us are like sort of, uh, we're, we're in total pandemic. But that's what's great about the podcast because you can't see us. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you in real time on the twenty first. I love yeah. it. Thank see you, my base friend. Camp. Take it easy, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.